Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. It's Thursday, August 24th, 2017, and I'm Nancy Cook, your host, and you are listening to Politico's Nerdcast. Here are the data points that we're going to talk about this week. 62. That's the percent of voters who say President Trump is doing more to divide the country, according to a Quinnipiac University poll released Wednesday. Criticisms of Trump have been heightened in the wake of his response to Charlottesville, which continued this week with a rally in Phoenix where the president meandered from the teleprompter to criticize the media and double down on the assertion that the statue's removals are taking away from our culture. We're also going to talk about the number $603 billion. That's the amount of defense spending in Trump's proposed budget for the next fiscal year. President Trump promised a historic increase in defense spending, and that's a key number given the fact that he promised to send more troops to Afghanistan in his primetime address on Monday. Before we jump in, some housekeeping notes. Please subscribe, rate us, and write a review on Apple Podcasts. The more reviews we get, the higher we rise in the charts, and the more listeners can discover us. And we love hearing from listeners, so email us with your questions or comments at nerdcast@politico.com. Okay, let's dive in. Joining us this week, we have White House reporter Josh Dossey. Hi, Nancy. Thanks for coming on. And then we have senior foreign affairs correspondent Michael Crowley. Hey, Michael. Hi, thanks for having me. We're going to kick off with this first data point, 62. That's the percent of voters who say President Trump is doing more to divide the country, according to a Quinnipiac University poll released Wednesday. Now, Josh, I want to throw it to you. How much did Trump diverge from the script when he <laughs> uh, was at that Phoenix rally on Tuesday? Well, it was a pretty dizzying display by all accounts. I mean, he threatened a government shutdown, which uh, frustrated legislative leadership. Now, the obstructionist Democrats would like us not to do it. But believe me, we have to close down our government. We're building that wall. He hinted he would pardon a controversial sheriff. That's, uh, you know, a flashpoint, to say the least. Was Sheriff Joe convicted for doing his job? That's what... He ran it against the media in pretty... Nasty terms for about 25 minutes. The very dishonest media, those people right up there with all the cameras. He called for an end to the filibuster. Uh, he attacked two senators in the state, Republicans of his own party. And nobody wants me to talk about your other senator who's weak on borders, weak on crime. So I won't talk about him. Uh, he expressed his somewhat begrudging respect for Kim Jong-un. Kim Jong-un, I respect the fact that I believe he is starting to respect us. I respect that. He, you Anything know, else, Josh? The minute the Confederate <laughs> statues being torn down, he said he might get rid of NAFTA. Uh, and that was only the half of it. Uh, it's hard to imagine that John Kelly's approved text with the teleprompter had uh, all of that uh, uh, scrolling through. I think it was a lot of... Uh, 
you know, just President Trump expressing his frustrations and holding court and reading the crowd. Uh, someone said to me after the rally that, you know, he goes up with a text and if the crowd doesn't respond to it, then he changes the text. I mean, he is better than a lot of politicians at looking around and saying, oh, people are looking bored. They're not clapping. And he goes for the applause line. So, uh you know, it was vintage Donald Trump. It's, is John Kelly going to change him? No. Is anyone going to change him? No. He went up and said what he wanted to say. And What I thought was so interesting was just the fact that he basically wanted to relitigate the whole Charlottesville thing from last week. And he wanted to build up support among the people at the rally for the statement that he originally gave. And I just thought it was so interesting because it seemed like White House advisors had wanted him to move past it. And he kind of totally refused to and and went on for 20 minutes about it and brought out of his jacket pocket that statement that he made, although he conveniently left out the parts that were controversial. But I thought it was so interesting that he's still gnawing on that and decided to sort of go over it in great detail. (laughs) There are Bruce Springsteen lyrics for this. No retreat, baby. No surrender. (laughs) I mean, Trump comes from like the quintessential, like, you know, Rui Cohn, his old advisor in New York, I think taught Donald Trump, you know, never give in, never show, never show any signs of weakness. Uh, I think President Trump, uh, from what we could tell publicly and privately, was very frustrated with the media coverage. He doesn't think he did anything wrong. Uh, You know, when I saw him pull out the first statement from Charlottesville, I said, oh, boy, here we go. He's going to read all of them and tell us. Uh, how how well he did. And that's basically what he did. I think for him, in some ways, he would rather be accused of being, you know, a racist. Obviously, he says he's not a racist or anything like that. But he would rather be accused of that than of giving in. I mean, the one core thing of Donald Trump's life that I've seen covering him, and I've, I think others have too, is that he just never apologizes, never surrenders, always on the offensive, never let someone else land a punch, always be throwing one. And I think this is what it was. It's just his, the core of who he is. People can say this is a bad story for us. I mean, he went for days and days and days attacking a beauty queen, a Mexican judge, people he had no business attacking, but he just kept attacking because that's what he does. It's that's who he is. That's you, it. You know, I, I a couple nights ago watched uh, the really interesting documentary on Netflix about Roger Stone, the longtime Trump political advisor. Uh, who has these uh, s- this list of Stone's rules, and one of them is uh, never defend, always attack, and uh, and that Roger Stone ethos, you know, you really see it in Donald Trump, and you really saw it that night, as Josh was saying, uh, uh, that if he if he feels like he might be on the losing side of an issue, just go twice as hard uh, on the other side. Don't try to clean it up by, you know, patching up your statements or fine-tuning it the way a lot of politicians would. Admittedly, he has done some of that this week on Charlottesville, I think, at the behest of his staff. Uh, but his own personal impulses go after somebody else. And in the campaign, it was Hillary Clinton. And here, it was the media. And the one thing that I would just want to expand on about what was breathtaking about that rally was, you know, in many ways, it was not that different from the Trump that we saw throughout the campaign that we've seen in certain moments in his presidency. Um, but what really jumped out at me was the intensity of the vitriol toward the media uh, to the point where he was suggesting that the media is actually, um, number one, unpatriotic and out to sabotage uh, the United States. Um, and number two, just telling bald-faced lies, uh, saying that CNN – uh, had cut away from his rallies when, in fact, that they hadn't. I was uh, watching it on CNN. Yeah, uh, it was bizarre. It, it was completely bizarre. 
uh, and uh, and I thought that that was the one thing that might have been a little bit different in kind. But uh, you know, the overall effect in the last few weeks has been this incredible kind of zigzag. You know, it's like a it's like a car where there's a fight for the steering wheel or something on the highway, and you know, Trump's at the wheel, and you've got you know his new chief of staff. Uh, Kelly in the passenger seat and maybe Mattis kind of reaching over from the back seat and some other people and they're trying to get him to steer straight down the highway in the right lane and Trump doesn't want to do it and the car is veering into the left lane going against the traffic the wrong way blaring its horn and it's just an (laughs) astounding thing to watch play out in real time we've never seen anything like it so I I guess my uh, big picture point on that is that the rally itself was very extraordinary as Josh said uh, the thing about the media jumped out to me, but you have to put it in the larger context of this back and forth, back and forth with his relatively restrained off the teleprompter by the book speech on Afghanistan a couple of nights ago, which we'll talk more about, uh, you know, uh, 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 and then that wacky over the top uh, Charlottesville press conference he had a week ago. Uh, and he is just careening around the road and we've never seen anything quite like that. And I and just so the, the last thought is that it's a little troubling, I think, from a totally non-ideological perspective to see this evidence of a president whose staff feels that he needs to be controlled and contained. We can see that in the difference between his unscripted remarks and the way they're trying to present him with the teleprompter and with the script, the difference between what they want him to be and what he wants to be. And that is just not in any possible way, a healthy dynamic, and you wonder how long it can endure. And one of the things that the president particularly chafes at is this perception that he can be managed. Uh, you know, after his speech on Monday night, where we got widespread a pundit applause for, oh, he's changing this and that. You know, he we read the teleprompter. Uh, one of his closest advisors told me, you know, once he watches this, it will make him want to go off script more. <laughs> and and that's exactly what happened. Uh, this guy told me this Tuesday morning and Tuesday night. It's it's to the T of what he did. Uh, I mean, he reads these stories. Like, Nancy, you had a great story today about how, you know, they're trying to control what info gets to his desk and, you know, keeping him from getting bogus blogs and rumors and keeping him from watching TV and keeping him from making uh, unsanctioned phone calls to legislators and foreign allies and diplomats and whoever. And he reads these stories and, and frankly, they piss him off. I mean, he doesn't like the idea that anyone can manage him. So he goes more off script and then they come back in and manage him. It's just a perpetual cycle of this this administration where people try to manage him. He doesn't like being managed. He lashes out. They try to manage him again. He lashes out. Uh, It's also amazing. It's fascinating behavior. It's really fascinating behavior. It's such a departure from the Washington norm because, uh, you know, in the Bush presidency in particular, and you heard some of this in the Obama presidency, the complaint was the president is isolated. He's surrounded by these advisors who only tell him what he wants to hear. You know, he needs more uh, he needs more sources of information. They have to open up the, the information that he gets. And in this White House, it is they got to cut it off. They can't let him take in the outside world. You know, you really have to restrict what he gets. Now, to be fair, uh, when he does get outside information, it's not like it's this great diversity of opinion. It's almost entirely Fox News uh, with some CNN uh, sort of commentary that he lashes out against. So, uh, uh, so maybe that's understandable. I, I want to uh, talk a little bit about, you know, beyond sort of the behavior of what happened at the rally, I want to talk about the fallout from it because, you know, he did talk a lot about the border wall and there's all these upcoming legislative fights that he's going to have in September that you've written about a lot, Josh, like, 
you know, passing the budget? And will there be a government shutdown? And they'll have to raise the debt ceiling. So what was the fallout from the rally with all of these things lined up? And even this morning, we're seeing the president tweeting right. about this thing. <laughs> what what happened? Well, the border wall part is particularly uh, contentious. A lot of us Senate Republicans do not want to shut down the government. Paul Ryan does not want to shut down the government over a border wall. Uh, President Trump said that famously on the campaign trail, Mexico would pay for the wall, but now he needs money for the wall. And he's told his advisors and, and people in the White House and I think very even publicly now that, you know, he's willing to shut down the government to get money for this wall. So you have a September where you have to pass a budget. You have to raise the debt ceiling, which a lot of the conservatives in the Freedom Caucus will, will chafe at as well. And so they'll probably have to get some Democrat support to raise the debt ceiling because it, there won't be the Republican votes there to do it. You have, you know, lots of these outside groups and and anti conservatives are really looking for tax reform. Uh, you know, it's kind of a hallmark of a legislative agenda. These people are disappointed about uh, the failure in health care. They're disappointed about some of his, you know, rolling scandals and crises. It's really coming down to the final wire because if you look at the holidays, you look at the short months, uh, you look at other recesses, there's not a lot of days left in session. And you have a president who wants a lot done, uh, Senate Majority Leader McConnell and Paul Ryan, I think, you know, are also frustrated at the lack of any signature accomplishments uh, legislatively so far. And you don't have a lot of time to do it. And you have a president, as we've talked about already, who, you know, kind of careens from issue to issue and creates uh, unnecessary drama sometimes in the eyes of these folks. Uh, and there's pretty big ticket issues on the line here uh, that the president and, and the Senate and the House need to keep the majority. What I found so interesting in my reporting is that I feel like the administration has already totally pivoted to tax reform. Like tax reform is the shiny thing that they want and the business community wants and President Trump feels comfortable talking about taxes. And they've completely missed the fact that, as you said, Josh, there's these other steps that have to take place before you get to tax reform. And the budget, for instance, will have these instructions that will give them all this leeway over what they can and can't do with tax reform. And I feel like because there's so few people in the White House that have government experience, uh, they don't really understand that these other things have to take place. And I feel like the White House, at least from the people that I've talked to, is underestimating, uh, you know, the challenges, particularly that the debt ceiling could pose. Sure. Uh, I mean, Republicans don't like to raise the debt ceiling. We've seen that time and time again. I mean, how many shutdown fights have, have you guys covered in Washington? Uh, without even the dynamics of this presidency, the debt ceiling is always a, a touchy issue. And without the dynamics of the wall and with other priorities that the administration might have that Republicans in Congress don't share, uh, I think the debt ceiling could be really a tough issue. I mean, what I keep hearing is that the administration may try to do a three-month punt and at the end of the year actually have the big showdown fight to just kind of move it along for now. Uh, but the the part that you say about tax reform, I think, is is really intriguing. You know, the uh, folks in the administration have said we're better prepared for this. We have better messaging. We're actually going to get tax reform right. This is not going to be another health care debacle. But they're already kind of pushing it back because of all these, you know, other fights. And you're seeing diverging messages already. I mean, there's I think this is going to be a struggle. Uh, you know, when's the last time tax reform was done? 1986, 30, 35 years ago? Uh I can't imagine all of the special interest and, and lobby groups are just going to say, sure, we'll get on board with the president for tax reform. Uh, I think it may be harder than health care. And do you think that there is – just back to the government shutdown for a second because I do feel like that would be a very extraordinary moment if there was a government shutdown with a Republican-controlled White House and Congress. I mean do you think realistically that we are looking at that as a possibility, Josh? Well, I don't know. But I do know that you see the president's 
tweets and his public comments recently. And there's a strategy inside the White House to run against Congress and to start distancing himself from Congress. You often hear his, his top folks say to, to me and others, you know, we're more popular than Congress. Look at the approval ratings of, of Congress. I mean, they're they're the ones to blame. And I could see the president being willing to shut down the government if he does not get money for the wall and his priorities and cast it simply as Congress failed you. Here's what the American people voted for. Here's my agenda. They're refusing to deliver on that. We're shutting down the government as an act of protest. Uh, whether he's willing to take that you know, nuclear step, so to speak, I don't know. But I, I do know there's a, there's a big appetite in the White House right now to run against this kind of entrenched Washington you know, uh, Congress uh, of a swamp, so to speak, uh, even though, you know, I think for close watchers, it's it's a bit hilarious knowing that these folks are a key to his agenda and he needs him. And if he ever wants to get anything done, he can't do this. But right now, I think that's what they really want to be doing. So shutting down the government is about as strong as message as any to say these people are the problem. Well, I also feel like politically it's very smart of him to run against the entrenched interest of Washington. I just wonder, like, will voters distinguish between Republicans in Congress and Republicans in the White House? I mean, I'm not necessarily sure that they will. I would be surprised if they did. And uh, I think I mean, I think everyone gets blamed. I think the congressional Republicans and the president get blamed if there's a shutdown. I think because Everything about politics right now is so Trump-centric. It just kind of feels like all of Washington is Donald Trump. If the government shuts down, it's a Trump story. And I think Trump Trump would be the default – would get the default blame. Now, the question is whether he can spin it masterfully into some kind of uh, stemwinder of an attack on Congress and kind of turn it around. But I think there's a pre-existing – uh, perception that uh, uh, you know Trump's White House is in chaos <laughs> and that he they don't really know how to govern uh, you know among all but his most core supporters you know I saw some polling uh, in the last few days that showed in some of the key swing states up to two thirds of voters are embarrassed by the way Trump is uh, conducting himself and I think that that translates into a sense that the guy um, isn't really uh, competent and capable. So I think that the, the the default is that it lands on his feet. One one last quick thought about this is I don't these, know that he sees it that way though. Well, this is what I this is the point related to the point I want to make. These shutdown fights and you know same thing like with the debt ceiling are these games of chicken. Okay, so you have two sides and it's like two cars driving toward each other and it's the classic thing of like who's going to swerve first. And you get in all this game theory. And I remember when Barack Obama was going through this. Uh, with Mitch McConnell and the Republicans in Congress, there were these long articles about game theory and the different <laughs> options. And you know, Obama was had like gamed it all out with his aides in these big strategy meetings. You know, with all these people who had you know had you know master's degrees and PhDs, and every, but everyone was like basically a rational actor. And I think the world kind of felt like this is probably going to work out okay. And then with Donald Trump, you have a guy like not interested in game theory, doesn't really know what it is. And if you have the metaphor of the two people driving at each other, who's going to swerve first, you suddenly have one of the drivers is somebody who, <laughs> you know, metaphorically speaking, may be completely drunk, may have his, you know, may or may not have headlights, may or may not be uh, texting while driving. Uh, you can't apply. Uh, traditional sort of assumptions about game theory or about how people are going to behave in these situations. Now, just as a closing thought, I would say that could actually be tremendously to Trump's negotiating benefit. It's the sort of madman theory. And it's if you want to find just a 
kind of bring in a different subject for a second, a charitable way of looking at how he talks about North Korea. There are some strategists who say, you know, Trump's talk about sort of threatening to start a nuclear war might actually possibly have the benefit of convincing the North Koreans he's just so crazy, unlike every other American president, he might do something we never would have expected before. I think the same dynamic could apply uh, in budget battles with Congress. So really hard to predict how it plays out, but that's a pretty new dynamic. Let's take a quick break to hear about one of Politico's other podcasts, The Global Politico. Okay, next we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the Afghanistan strategy and Trump's evolving international approach. Uh, that data point is $603 billion. That's the amount of defense spending in Trump's proposed budget for the next fiscal year. President Trump promised a historic increase in defense spending. And while it wasn't that, he did deliver a speech Monday night that signaled a strong boost in America's military spending in Afghanistan. Now, Michael, walk us through this speech. It wasn't, you know, as wild as the rally on Tuesday, but, you know, it did have really important uh, implications for what will happen to the U.S. involvement in Afghanistan. And what were the main takeaways and why did Trump choose to deliver that speech now? Well, the main takeaway is that after 16 years of American engagement in Afghanistan, going back to the fall of 2001. Of course, we invaded Afghanistan uh, after the September 11th attacks. Uh, 16 years into it, uh, more than 2,000 Americans dead, uh, many, many hundreds of billions of dollars spent. Donald Trump is going to essentially continue with a kind of status quo plus strategy. And this is, you know, a president who has uh, repeatedly criticized American interventions overseas, said that we need to be – he has an America first foreign policy vision and and who many times in the past, uh, dating back you know, five or so years, has called the Afghanistan war uh, wasteful, um, uh, something that should be uh, – we should pull the plug on. Let's just get out. Uh, we're not accomplishing anything there. Uh, so the generals around him essentially convinced him that if you pull out of Afghanistan – uh, it could be satisfying. You uh, will be spending a lot less money. Uh, you will not be seeing American men, women in harm's way and possibly uh, killed and injured. Uh, you run the risk of a repeat of Iraq 2014 when ISIS rampaged across the country, uh, took major Iraqi cities, the second biggest Iraqi city of Mosul. So uh, the main takeaway is the status quo will basically endure. Now, Trump being Trump uh, – doesn't want to say that. So he delivered the speech in very Trumpian fashion with a lot of bombast. He called uh, this new strategy dramatically different. uh, And he kind of coded it in a lot of um, pot shots at Barack Obama and uh, American political leaders before him who had not been able to solve this problem. Uh, I'll just add very quickly, so what actually does this mean? What are we going to do? Defense officials talking to reporters on background have said that in the short term, this means that we will send another approximately 3,800 U.S. troops to Afghanistan. Primarily, they will be training the Afghan security forces. The idea here is for the Afghans to do the bulk of the fighting, but that we're going to be helping them to do that uh, at a higher capacity than we have been. Uh, Trump himself did not actually specify how many troops we'll be sending. That is an unusual and controversial thing to do. He thinks that he we should maintain a kind of strategic ambiguity around that. And there is a debate about that in Washington, which we can also talk more about. But what that will do is up the official total of U.S. troops, which is now 8,400 in Afghanistan, 
by about 50 percent. Uh, there has been reporting that the uh, real number, which is not actually being fully disclosed by the Pentagon, uh, is more like 12,000 U.S. troops. So it means we'll be adding about a third more. I think it's just really quickly. I just want to insert. I also feel like, well, A, whenever anyone says this is, you know, we're going into 16 years in Afghanistan, although I've lived through all of that, it's always so remarkable to me that we've been there for that long. But then, too, I just want to point out this is such a difference from what Trump promised during the campaign. You know, he was all about make America first, you know. Uh, talked with much more of an isolationist philosophy. And I feel like for him to agree to this uh, shows a real change from his campaign position. But I also feel like it shows uh, a real savviness on the part of this uh, group of generals uh, that are involved in the White House and running these policy councils. And and I feel like they've had perhaps some of the most policy influence over the president than anyone else we've seen. Well, what struck me was the president said that he really didn't want to do this. He said, my first instincts were not to do this. My first instincts were not to continue this war. I mean, you had Steve Bannon, the recently departed chief strategist, proposing uh, mercenaries coming in to, uh, to Afghanistan. Eric Prince, controversial uh, figure, controversial plan. Uh, he was kind of secretly plotting that. You had a lot of other uh, Trump advisors who said, you know, listen, you ran on bringing us out of these entanglements and and putting America first, as you said, Nancy, and not uh, kind of perpetuating the status quo here. And it, it seemed to me watching Monday night that Trump had been cornered almost into to doing this. You had Mattis and Tillerson and H.R. McMaster and kind of the conventional military apparatus telling him repeatedly, we can't just pull out of this war. We can't do that. You know, this is – it's just what you have to do. So it, it seemed to me that there was no glee in doing it. There was not a president who came out to the podium and said, you know, I really like this option. I really think this is an option that befits our country well, that shows, uh, you know, a tangible way of success. He kept saying winning, but there was very little uh, definition on what that means, how what his plan is, what his approach is. It was all very, uh, you know— amorphous. It was all very vague. And it was all, it seemed the president who saw, I have no better option. So it's just kind of what I have to do, but I'm not taking much jewelry in it. Well, and, and in fact, we know that there was an intense tug of war uh, inside the administration to get him to land on this policy. And uh, Steve Bannon in particular was um, sort of uh, encouraging Trump's instinct to pull up stakes and uh, basically and dramatically reduce or end America's involvement in Afghanistan, although Bannon was uh, uh, sort of promoting a plan where we would outsource a lot of what we're doing now to private contractors um, with the help of Eric Prince. Uh, who used to run the uh, the company known as Blackwater, which became notorious uh, in Iraq as a as a kind of mercenary private contractor outfit. Um, but uh, uh, Mattis, uh, National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster, uh, Chief of Staff Kelly, and others uh, really had to wrangle Trump uh, into taking this position. I would say that you know Trump defenders are making the point. It's not. It's not. Uh, clearly in conflict with what he said as a candidate, that he talked about America first. He talked about uh, fewer foreign interventions, not trying to do regime change, um, but that he also uh, talked in a very muscular way about killing terrorists and crushing ISIS and al-Qaeda and that uh, what the goal here is, according to Trump, is not nation building. It's killing terrorists. And he's essentially saying, I'm only doing this because – 
uh, ISIS is taking hold in Afghanistan, Al-Qaeda has been there, uh, and we're going to kill all the guys who have anything to do with those groups and then get out once we've done that. He didn't set any timelines, but he did say that there will be sort of benchmarks that will measure uh, uh, when America can start withdrawing. So th- there is there has always been a little bit of a confusing duality to Trump where he criticizes uh, American interventionism and things like the Iraq War, the Libya uh, bombing campaign, um, but at the same time, of course, is extremely bellicose when it comes to uh, you know crushing these terrorist groups. And you'll remember he talked about carpet bombing ISIS and that sort of thing. So I guess you know Trump defenders would sort of choose that part of his campaign rhetoric and say it's consistent with that. Well, the way it's been described to me by by folks on Trump orbit is it's almost a situational approach. I mean, he goes into these situations like the Syria military strike, and you know he was basically convinced to do that by looking at pictures of of small children, and it was a visceral reaction to what he saw as as something that was a terrible atrocity. Uh, you know, with North Korea, he threatened far more uh, than any other president has, you know, fire and fury like the world has never seen. It was a situational approach to how he was feeling. I mean, the Trump doctrine, I, I don't think, can be easily put into a bucket of saying isolationist or interventionist or hawk or dove. It's it's almost this, you know, pragmatic situational approach to he sees foreign policy almost as a negotiating table. You know, he goes after China and then he, he backs down on China because China gives him something he wants. He, you know, goes after uh, he won't go after Russia, even though uh, other presidents have because he sees Russia as as whatever of a asset or possibly an ally or, or who knows what, really. I mean, it, there is no I guess all I would say is it, it never strikes me in talking to Trump. You know, the Trump loyalists, the Trump core, the people who know him best, that he comes into these foreign policy decisions with a, oh, we have to hew to this uh, original line. This is what we promised on the campaign trail. How does it fit into that that doctrine? It's almost just free flowing. You know, what do you guys think? What do you think? What do you think? You know, what what happens if we do this? What happens if we do that? And he will kind of go with an unorthodox option sometimes or just based on his gut, even in these situations where past presidents would you know, he would go to this, you know, long process and talk about doctrine and consult Henry Kissinger and who but knows even, who else. But I, I think that's exactly right. But I would just say that doctrine, the media always wants to put doctrines onto uh, presidential foreign policy and they, they really defy it. I mean, I think right. the reality of those meetings in the Situation Room when you're trying to make foreign policy from the White House is that doctrine doesn't work. Uh, and, you know, even Barack Obama who uh, campaigned on, you know, ending wars and withdrawing America from around the world. Uh, you know, it, it, he, he got us out of Iraq and then he basically sent us back into the tune of several thousand troops. He did the Libya intervention. He actually surged troops into Afghanistan after taking over as president and never was able to get us all the way out. Uh, so, uh, so there's really no neat and tidy way to do foreign policy. But I think Trump does seem more unpredictable uh, than his predecessors, at least up until now. Just in terms of Afghanistan, do we have a sense from what the president said and from your conversations with, you know, defense officials, what the long-term strategy will be and also how they will measure whether or not they've been successful? So I I think the key uh, – look, the long-term answer almost certainly is that you have some kind of reconciliation deal, basically a peace deal – uh, between the Afghan government and the Taliban, which the U.S. could either explicitly or implicitly be a party to, will also involve 
uh, Pakistan and India. It's a very complicated puzzle to put together. Um, Trump in his speech kind of flicked at that, didn't seem very excited about the idea, said it's a possibility, uh, but we'll see. Uh, but I think that if you talk to the policy experts who have been doing this for a long time, they understand you're never going to crush the Taliban. The Taliban is not an army that's going to surrender. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a, a heavily ethnic and regionally based insurgency. Uh, it's a population of people uh, who are showing who who have been fighting through generations? Um, you hear stories about households where, you know, there are five children, and one after another they go off to battle and they get killed, and their Kalashnikov comes back, and the next son goes off and fights, and he dies, and the next one goes, and uh, uh, so it's probably a very unsatisfying reconciliation. Uh, uh, the, I think the key difference in terms of how do we measure Trump offered no timeline. And he is absolutely opposed to timelines, as are many, I would say, sort of center, center-right and conservative defense policymakers and military intellectuals. Um, what the Trump vision is now, to the extent there is one, is that we won't be talking about schedules for withdrawals and we're going to have X number of troops by this date and hopefully you know, 50 percent less by that date, which was kind of how Barack Obama approached it. Uh, rather, he says that there will be benchmarks and as the Afghan government and security forces make progress uh, and they are more able to defend themselves without our help, um, then we will start to withdraw. And the idea is to get the Afghans again to do the fighting for us with us in a primarily in a support role from behind, which by the way is very interesting to me because it very clearly echoes – George W. Bush's strategy in Iraq and people who were around uh, 10 or so years ago will remember that Democrats were insisting that Bush declare timelines for when he would start withdrawing from Iraq and Bush would say uh, it's based on conditions on the ground, not artificial timetables and his mantra about the Iraqi security forces was as they stand up, we'll stand down and Trump used rhetoric in his speech that was extremely similar to the rhetoric I heard George W. Bush using from about 2004 to 2007 or 8. Uh, uh, so to answer your question, uh, Trump did not spell out a clear endgame. It probably does require an unsatisfying kind of reconciliation deal. Uh, but I think that as long as the Afghan security forces are having trouble defending themselves, it looks like the Taliban could take over more territory and even threaten the government in Kabul. Uh, Based on Trump's own words, uh, we're still going to be there in significant numbers. And I'll just add on a brief thing to that. I think it it's a fundamental – what Trump is learning is that a lot of these decisions are way harder than he thought they would be on the campaign trail, particularly these you know foreign wars and uh, when to strike and when to you know engage in bellicose rhetoric and – you know, I think the president kind of cast all of these other Washington operators as, you know, naifs and just idiotic uh, simpletons who who didn't know how to do anything. I know how to make a deal. And I think he's found this to be a lot more complicated and nuanced than he thought. I think he's seen in a lot of these situations there are no good policy prescriptions. There are bad ones and maybe a little bit better, but there is nothing that you can do that's fundamentally just winning, as he likes to say. And I think that's what you're seeing in this strategy is just like Michael was saying, you know, the president likes to have clear wins. He likes to say, we did this. I did this. Here's an accomplishment. What are these are not easy to win. There is no win. I mean, it's a nuanced challenge. It's probably going to go on for years, and it's not going to get any better. And he's going to be responsible for it. He doesn't do. He doesn't do well with that. So, 
I wonder if in a year with these, you know, more troops on the ground, if the situation still is as bad as it is now, there has not been any sort of fundamental improvement. The generals can't say to him, this is what we've done to make it better. I, I don't know that he sticks to this. I mean, we'll see, yeah. but... Yeah, who knows whether he sticks to it. I, I will say, uh, to Josh's point, Trump did acknowledge this dynamic in his speech. He said that he didn't quite say it in these words, but he more or less said the world looks different when you're sitting behind the desk in the Oval Office, that it's easy to criticize from the outside. It looks different when you're there. You can kind of imagine Barack Obama, uh, uh, you know, pounding his desk in frustration when he hears those words because Trump just, you know, lobbed all these bombs at Obama. Uh, over just issues like this, really hard choices, pretending that there were easy answers. And Trump is now admitting uh, that the answers are not uh, as easy as they may have seemed from the outside. Uh, uh, so, but, but look, a lot of foreign policy is exactly that, uh, the least bad option and trying to present it to the American public, you know, basically serving a kind of a, you know, a, a, a uh, you know, a turd sandwich on a platter to the public <laughs> and pretending that it's, Very you know, a, 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 a croak madame or something. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and that was what Trump was trying to do uh, in that speech. And again, dressing it up with uh, bellicose talk about crushing and killing terrorists, blaming Barack Obama for what he called, you know, the, the stupid decision to pull out of Iraq and let ISIS rampage through that country, saying he's not going to do that again, but never really conceding at the end of the day um, that this was a really unsatisfying uh, 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 decision he had to make with that is not going to lead to any sort of happy outcome in the foreseeable future. Well, thank you so much for joining us. You guys were both great. Uh, thanks, sure. Michael. Thank you. Thanks and for having me. Thanks, Josh. <laughs> thanks for having me. Thank you to our listeners. If you like the show, remember to subscribe, rate, and write a review in Apple Podcasts and email us at nerdcast at politico.com. Thank you to our producer, Bridget Mulcahy, researcher, Zach Montalero, and illustrator, Bill Kuchman. We'll talk to you all next week.